This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, it's day 27 of the government shutdown. John Nichols will comment. Also, call me a refugee, not an immigrant. That's what Viet Win says. He'll be speaking at Royce Hall at UCLA tonight at 8. But first, it's day four of the teacher's strike in L.A., Trump Watch starts right now. Well, 30,000 teachers have taken their strike in Los Angeles into its fourth day in a district with more than half a million students, most of them poor and Latino. For comment and analysis, we turn to Nelson Lichtenstein. He teaches... American History at UC Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's the author or editor of 16 books, most recently, Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, the American Prospect, and Dissent, where he wrote recently about the teacher's strike. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Delighted to be here. Well, the L.A. school district is the largest employer in the city, so when their workers go on strike, it's a very big deal, first of all, for the students and their families, but then for, uh, for all of us. Uh, let's review. Teachers in L.A. are striking not just for better pay and benefits. What is the strike about? Well, right. Good question. I think the strike is, uh, is, is on, uh, about some of the largest issues really confronting uh, the United States today. It, it, it's, it's a strike. It is, in fact, over some you know, wages and, 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 and benefits and things like that that you can count. But it's, it's, it's much larger than that. First of all, uh, for, for years now, for 40 years, uh, public education, public services of all sorts have been starved uh, in one way or another, and in California in particular, uh, you know, the California school system uh, used to be 40 years ago uh, one of the, the best in the country, and now it's down toward the bottom in the, in the various rankings. And I think this strike is, first and foremost, an effort to, to uh, force a state, uh, uh, well, first of all, the school board, and then, uh, then the city, and then the state, which by any measure California is doing pretty well recently, um, to, to, you know, uh, put more resources into, into public education uh, and, 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 by extension, into, into social services in general. I mean, and, and I think the, the wind is at the back of the, of the teachers. This is not a sort of desperation strike or a, a strike in a, in a kind of declining Rust Belt city. This is a strike where uh, the, 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 the state does have a surplus, uh, where um, there's a general recognition that the schools have, uh, are, have, been, have been starved. There's, there's remarkable, as far as I can tell, remarkable support for the strike from the community. Uh, and that's, that's, so I think that it's, it's, it's really about uh, ending a period of whatever you want to call it, austerity, neoliberalism. Uh, uh, I, th- I think, it, by the way, I would say it's a, it's a strike in a, in a kind of post Trump world. I mean, um, the, the, yeah, the let strike, me let me yeah. interrupt you there for a minute because yeah. that's a very striking idea. It's, yeah. It is an event in a about a post-Trump world. I know you wrote in dissent. This bitter conflict is also a fight about the meaning of progressive politics. So, pulling the lens way back here, what yeah. what exactly are you talking about? 
Well, when I, when I say post-Trump, I mean every player in the strike, uh, the school board and the, and the city officials, is a Democrat, or at least a, 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 a cause of a Democrat, including the many of the charter school uh, people who will get to that, get to that in a second. Yeah. That's, that's one thing. So it's a fight. And, and of course, Trumpism, or the Republican Party anyway, is, is very much a sort of minor player in, in California now, really not decisive at all. So that's, that's at one level. And then the second level is, is, yes, what is the meaning of progressive politics? Uh, it, you know, beyond, beyond the moment when, when uh, imagine Trump is no longer on the scene. And in California, I mean, as I say, you can. Is it, is it of course, does it mean a kind of multicultural America? Yes, indeed. But what about the questions of inequality and economic, and, and, and economic inequality? And then the role of, of trade unions, which for, uh, for historically, for, for 150 years, have been a, one of the main vehicles for, for uh, citizenship, and for uh, economic uh, uh, betterment of, of the working classes. And the other thing, of course, is this is very much a um, the strike. Is, well, I say it's both about post-Trump, but it also reminds me of the, of the struggles of the early 20th century. We have essentially an, an immigrant working class, and I, I, I think at least half of the uh, school teachers are, are, are Latino or minority. Yeah, I think so. And not to mention, of course, the 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 eighty percent of the of the students are. So it's 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 like you know the 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 Yiddish and Italian you know garment workers of New York, um, hundred years ago. So we have uh, we have uh, an immigrant working class which is organized and is and expressing it. It's really kind of an expression of social social citizenship here. And they're they're and historically the uh, you know progressives progressives have thought that the state can play. A, a substantial role in creating uh, a good society, and that's what they're they're fighting here. Now, the now, another point. Let me let me let you continue. Yeah. Let me let me ask here. Just yeah. following up on that point about the teachers are uh, representing an older kind of labor militants yeah. by uh, mm-hmm. immigrant groups. Over the last several months, it seems like. Teachers in many places have right. been in the vanguard of labor militancy, which wasn't the case at the beginning of the 20th century. In Oklahoma, in Arizona, in West Virginia, there were amazing strikes by teachers. Isn't this one different from that, though? Well, well, well. Insofar as the, the, those strikes in those red states, uh, they, they were actually the, the unions were in fact involved, but the unions were very weak. They weren't recognized. They didn't. They didn't. They were not uh, as central uh, players. Um, and but here, of course, you do have a a uh, uh, well relatively strong union that that is that is uh, that, is, uh, that is quite uh, well established. Uh, but 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 I think you know the the, the teachers. It's not an accident that teachers are. Are playing this role because they they represent the you know the, what what the you know the the social the, how should I put it the the social state or the the social wage or the 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 society which cannot you can't buy really uh, education on a, on an absolutely individual basis well you can try I guess it's something you can buy hire a tutor but for most people you know it's something we buy collectively and the teachers are trying to reinvigorate that aspect of of American society and life and I think that and I and to and to you know we've had years and years of denigration of the of the public uh, conservatives like to call public schools government schools you know mm-hmm. and, and that of course implies well government can't do anything right you know D- DMV, uh, D- Department of Motor Vehicles, is sort of a curse word uh, because it presumably is uh, uh, is uh, inefficient. Although actually, it, it, that's not the case. In any event, um, uh, I think so. So in that respect, 
teachers are at the are the vanguard in the leadership of this movement. I think it's about far more than teachers. It's about people in in, in social services in, in general, uh, and uh, whether it's hospitals, uh, uh, etc. And also, and then by extension, it's by the that entire sort of world universe of Americans who work in the service sector in retail, uh, whose in, incomes have been stagnant for many many years. Um, so that's one. Th- I think that that's that's one thing. And 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 the fact that it is that well in West Virginia, which is basically a kind of white state. I mean, yes, it was it was yeah. basically really white. Uh, but in many in Arizona, and then of course in California and other places, the 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 heart and soul of the American working class today is is immigrant, uh, uh, and that's as it was many decades ago. Yeah. Well, charter schools are right. not officially an issue in right. the negotiations, but they're really an crucial part of the background to why the teachers are striking and why the superintendent and the present school board are are not not eager to make a deal. Let's talk yeah. about the the, the right. sort of the secret history of this strike, which is right. the rise of the charter schools. Right, right. They, you know, the, yeah, the charter. I mean, the charter schools. I, we can't get into the whole history. It, it initially, way way back, came out of the left as a way of of shaking up a sort of stolid, uh, you know, machine, uh, school systems. But but over the last quarter century or so, they've been they've been championed by those who are um, uh, hostile to. Uh, to teacher unionism and to and to public education in, in general, some of some outside the Democratic Party, uh, obviously conservatives like Betsy DeVos, who's yeah. now Secretary of, of Education, but many yeah. many inside of it for for a variety of reasons, including like Eli Broad, who is ostensibly a Democrat and, and, and is quite proud of the fact he went to New York City public schools, but nevertheless is a big champion of, of charters. I think what, I think what, what you have here is this, uh, and then uh, uh, the, the superintendent of Butner. Butner, Austin Butner. Oh, no, Austin Butner. He, he, uh, he, too, is, a, is officially a Democrat who worked in the Clinton administration. Uh, Arnie Duncan, I would say, who is the, um, the was Obama's uh, secretary of education, has come out with a statement on, on in support of the school board and against the the, the teachers uh, union, wow. but here but here's where I think that the fight the the, the over in California over the last uh, several uh, well years and months there have been a number of contests uh, election uh, in uh, in which the uh, uh, advocates of charter schools have poured tons of money. Uh, they won uh, in, uh, taking control of the L.A. Um, uh, school board. Uh, uh, I think it was last year. Yeah. They they lost in their efforts to uh, to uh, get their their guy put in as a secretary of education for the whole state. So it's but it's nevertheless it's a contest. Um, and here I think, but here's the larger meaning of it. If you uh, there are those who, for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, believe that you know breaking up public education, uh, privatizing it, uh, you know uh, making it sort of more like a the sale of of a good is would be a good thing. Uh, sometimes they have good motives, and sometimes absolutely cynical ones. Um, nevertheless, clearly, if the public education uh, system is failing, and that becomes manifest, and 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 the and the board of education is, is making the point: oh, it, we're, we're facing a, a fiscal cliff, disaster. Uh, you know, austerity is necessary. Uh, we can't limit uh, class sizes, etc. Well, if that's the case. Then lots of people, and some of whom are entirely, you know, uh, liberal and 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 good-hearted, are going to say, "Well, 
I'm fleeing this failing system. Yeah. Either if you're rich enough, put your kids in purely private schools, and if you aren't so rich, put them into charter schools. So the, the argument, and here's the, the perniciousness of the argument that's being made, that the L.A. school system is, is, ne- is of necessity, uh, uh, needs to be on starvation rations, that, that school size has to be, uh, school class size cannot be limited, that we, we can't you know, make it better. That is an argument in, to do something else for for telling parents yeah. you know get out of here flee and it's self defeating it's it's a sel- it's a self defeating prophecy because then of course as the school system gets gets worse uh, there's a downward spiral uh, the the public schools only uh, you know are the, the, they they by law must uh, you know educate everyone including the difficult students while the charters and the private schools basically cherry pick the better ones so this is this is why this fight is really important and it has implications way beyond, uh, you know, uh, the wages of individual school teachers. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Nelson Lichtenstein. He's a professor of history at UC Santa Barbara, and he's written recently for Dissent Magazine, analyzing uh, the background to the current L.A. teacher strike now in day four. Uh, tell us about the union, UTLA, United Teachers of Los Angeles, the vote in favor of a strike was overwhelming, 98%. Uh, You say in your article in Dissent, the UTLA spent years preparing for this fight. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, uh, school, um, um, uh, public school, uh, unionism has uh, waxed and waned waned over the the decades. But in, in the last decade, there's been a kind of, Revival of it, a kind of uh, a new leadership uh, in many ways. Uh, I think this began in Chicago in uh, 2012 when there was a, a strike again against a Democratic mayor, Rahm Emanuel, who wanted who did and, and wanted to close down uh, schools in uh, in uh, poor neighborhoods, and the, and the union struck, received a tremendous amount of support, and that was an inspiration to school teachers and others all over the country. And in fact, the West Virginia teachers had, had definite connections to the Chicago, what had happened in Chicago and, and new leadership. And then in uh, 2000, I think 13 and 14 in Los Angeles, a new uh, a cohort of, uh, 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 you know, I think visionary and militant uh, leaders came to the fore in the uh, UTLA, the United Teachers of LA, and began, you know, uh, preparing for for, for battles that were that were kind of going to be politicized, and, and let me just say that that uh, one of the one of the critiques of the conservatives uh, is that oh you know uh, uh, t- uh, public employees are, they're they're too political you know but uh, but all all social struggles are political yeah. and certainly in the public sector and you we just have to recognize that of course it's a political that, and i mean it's actually true of the private sector as well so they began preparing for this they had a, a strike in 2015 or they had a negotiation in 2015 they won some but here they they really this this one they they, they want to um, um, have the, the broader issues at at, at 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 stake and i think they they are and schools and class size is a crucial one because you there have been many studies you 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 must have smaller classrooms in order to have good education especially for people whose english is not uh, uh their first language yes uh, our time is flying here um i want to get your sense of how this how this could end what would constitute a victory for the la teachers well i think unquestionably um the uh, uh the, the state 
And I think we're getting some hints of that right now. The state, which does have a $21 billion surplus, uh, a, new, a new governor, uh, has to come in and at least make some guarantees about the future uh, of, of, of funding. And, and, and one aspect of this is, is not just to spend that surplus. That, that's fine. That'll go away. But to change the, you know, the tax system in, in the state, and, and I think we now have, the, the, for the first time, the, the chance to change Proposition 13, which you know, passed in 1978, really starved uh, local um, uh, school uh, districts, and, 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 and we can change that to make that a, you know, more progressive. Uh, and so if the state can sort of guarantee a, a future uh, stream of funding, this will uh, be, a, be, be a, victor, a, a real victory for, for public education uh, in general, and the, and the L.A. teachers, of course, in particular. And just one last note here. Uh, one of the keys to what's happening now is really impressive support among parents, among families, yeah. and among communities. My neighborhood is full of these uh, <clears throat> signs in store windows that say, "We stand with teachers." Yes, I, and I think I mean, and, and I think that reflects this. I, you know, everything is connected. It reflects this broader uh, uh, sense that we've had. Uh, social inequality for too long. It also reflects, I do think, uh, an anti-Trump sense. You know that, yeah. that these are immigrant students and immigrant teachers, and we have to defend that. I mean, uh, you know, and that's and California is, in, in at least in many ways, a liberal state. And so I do think there's a kind of uh, these things are not isolated, and they're connected uh, uh, to politics and 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 just co- social and cultural change, uh, as well as to the particular needs of the students. So I think that's a extraordinarily important and heartening. Um, uh, phenomena. Nelson Lichtenstein, you can read his analysis of the L.A. teacher strike at uh, dissentmagazine.org. Nelson, thanks so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, it's day 27 of the government shutdown. John Nichols will comment. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. I'm John Wiener. This is Trump Watch. We're live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about the shutdown. A new PBS Marist poll asked Americans who is responsible for the shutdown. 31% said Democrats in Congress. 54% said Trump. For comment, we turn once again to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, and his latest book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It is a pleasure to be with you, John, and what a pleasure to listen to uh, your previous guests. What a good explanation yeah. of this struggle out there in L.A., which we are all following nationwide. Well, thank you very much. So I want to talk about the art of the deal here. Trump claims, of course, to be a master of the art of the deal, but on at least on the wall in the shutdown, he seems to uh, have no interest in a deal. He doesn't care about the 800,000 federal workers who are not getting paychecks. He explained, quote, most of the people not getting paid are Democrats, close quote, so he doesn't care about them. He seems to think the American people back his position, even though the polls show exactly the opposite, the 
Last Pew poll showed 58% of Americans said they oppose the wall. And he doesn't even seem to understand why the Democrats are, you know, united and standing very firm on this. What's your sense of the politics of the shutdown right now? Well, you put a lot of good things on the table there, John. And and let's carve out one element where Trump says most of the the federal employees are Democrats. We know from polling that's actually not true. They may be majority Democrats, but there's a lot of lot of federal employees who are Republicans, as there are a lot of union members, you know, in any sector who are Republicans. But I, I think by in pretty short order, they're going to all be Democrats. <laughs> and that's the that gets to the heart of your question about the politics of this thing. Donald Trump and his Republican allies do not understand the evolutionary nature of politics. That politics does not simply lock in in, you know, 1958 and stay that way forever. It is influenced by events. It is influenced by things that people learn, that people see. California is a classic example of that. You had uh, in the you know, late 80s, early 90s, Republicans there attacking immigrants uh, with legislative measures and other proposals and referendums. And, and what happened? The, California really shifted. That had an impact on the state. People said, oh, okay, we get where those Republicans are coming from. We're going to go to a different place. It, it changed a state. Many states do that. At the federal level, uh, these folks began the Trump administration by going after the Affordable Care Act, which had mixed polling numbers at that point. They made the Affordable Care Act popular. Yes. They made it so popular that it was a winning issue, especially uh, pre-existing conditions, a winning issue for Democrats in gubernatorial and congressional races in 2018. In fact, I would yeah. go so far as to say that many of the victories were based on that. Now, I would argue that the president and his Republican allies unwittingly are making government popular. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I no, is, you, you, that's a great argument. Happening. It's a great argument. The amazing thing to me about all this is that the Republicans, you may recall, controlled both houses of Congress for the last two years. But over those last two years, when Republicans controlled everything, the Republicans in Congress refused to fund even one mile of Trump's wall. Even the ones who are militantly anti-immigrant know that the wall is a waste of money and it won't work to keep people out. The Republicans have caved in on a lot of dangerous and stupid ideas of Trump's, but for some reason, they stayed firm for two years on refusing to fund a single mile of the wall. And right now, Lindsey Graham is urging Trump to reopen the government and resume negotiations with the Democrats. That seems to me an advice to, to fold. Uh, what does all this tell us? Well, look, I, I think you go to the heart of the matter there, you know, that, that the Republicans, um, you know, they may not be a, a group of rocket scientists, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, their experience tells them that, um, you know, this isn't, isn't such a good idea. You know, uh, one of the members of Congress who is closest to the border, right, um, you know, a Republican, is this Will Hurd from down in Texas. Yeah. And, and you know, I would, I'd be more than happy to put him on any TV show 
any day of the week because he raises fundamental questions about about all this, just as uh, his friend Beto O'Rourke did. And so I, I think one of the things for the Republicans, one of their challenges is that usually in any political party, your drive, your push is led by people who come from the heart of the matter, people that are, you know, most closely affected, who are, who, you know, are the logical leaders in this thing. It, the fact of the matter is that, you know, a lot of Republicans in those border areas, governors and, you know, members of Congress, recognize this is a really dumb idea. Yeah. And it's not only a dumb idea, John, from a standpoint of the human side, and there it's not just dumb but cruel yeah. and, and awful, but it is also dumb from an economic side because, you know, these border regions, I was in El Paso uh, during the campaign covering the, the Senate race down in Texas. I mean, you, people move back and forth. The, the economies of our, of our states on the border are, are rooted in this, you know, this movement of people. Yeah. And, and building a wall, making it much more complicated, this is just bad Bad strategy, bad politics, and an awful lot of Republicans understand that, even if they, you know, kind of go along with the madness of their president. So the bottom line on all this thing, John, I would say is that uh, the heart of the matter was that meeting between Trump, Pelosi, and Schumer, where they're sitting there, and, um, you know, Trump is saying, well, i got a problem with the Senate. Senate's got, the Democrats have got to do this thing. And remember, that was before the transition of power, right? That was before Pelosi was in charge of the House. Yeah. And, 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 and as Pelosi and Schumer basically pointed out to the guy, his people could do it right then. Yeah. And in fact, or at least they could do a lot of it. So this is a, this is a mess that the president has created. It is such a severe mess that every day it gets worse. And when you see somebody like Lindsey Graham, who's pretty much a toady to the president, yeah. you know, trying to find a way out, that's a big deal. And you know why it's a big deal, John? Hmm. We're going to have our, you know, we, we get together on this show, we have quizzes. This <laughs> is your quiz time. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, John. When was the Coast Guard founded? <laughs> uh, 1789. I give up. Uh, not bad. <laughs> Wow, are you good? It was August 4th, 1790. You're only a year off. You did fantastic. You're going to get, I give you, you're getting an A minus. No question about it. I got a friend. When was, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. When was the, when was the first time that they weren't paid? That we can tell, at least some of the Coast Guard people are saying. When was the first time that they know that, that, that they weren't paid? The first time the Coast Guard wasn't paid? Uh, yeah. Two weeks ago. Two days ago. Two days ago. I'm off by 12 yeah. days. <laughs> no, but you're still good. You're really, doing really good. 42,000 members of the Coast Guard oh my God. not getting paid. Uh. This is the Coast Guard. These are uniformed personnel of the United States of America. I'm going to tell you something. What people don't understand about this is it keeps creeping out. It keeps yeah. getting worse. The government yeah. shutdown expands. It doesn't contract. Yeah. And with every passing day... I think we get closer to the point where Republicans are going to have to break with this guy. Um, and when that break comes, to, um, I would argue it will be one of the most critical moments of the Trump presidency, because once you start to learn to say no to a bully, 
um, it's interesting what comes next. You know, I have to say, Trump, uh, for the last uh, few weeks, has seemed increasingly pathetic rather than authoritarian, like the authoritarian strongman. Uh, is that just my feeling, or, or do other people feel that way? Well, don't go too far down this track, because I'm writing a book on American fascism. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, I don't want you to undercut my message right. here. Right. But, uh, no, no, I mean, the truth of the matter is, I think you're exactly right. I, I, as I, I really emphasize that point. This shutdown is driving home, I think, to a lot of Republicans, you know, what a nut this guy is. Yeah. You know, and I don't mean a nut in a pretty or nice way. I mean, like, a really troublesome character. And, um, and if they have to force his hand to end the shutdown, uh, remember, that is intersecting with the moment at which we await the Mueller report yeah. and we wait, await yeah. a host of other developments. Yeah. Uh, I am going to go so far as to say that what the president is doing right now um, could severely damage and undermine his ability to manage the remainder of his presidency, which might not be all that long. Well, you know, this reminds me of the Steve King story, which you've written about recently for thenation.com. The Republicans in Congress turned against Steve King, kind of a big surprise since they'd put up with his racism for, for a decade. Uh, it mm -hmm. sort of points out that what you were saying at the beginning of this, politics changes in America. Do you think the Steve King event has some implications for Trump? Well, I mean, look, Steve King was a guy who was so powerful in Iowa that in 2016, 2015, 2016, they were referring to the Steve King primary, i.e., that all the candidates were going to appear with him, to meet with him, to talk with him, because they so desperately wanted his endorsement. And that's an important thing to understand. That's not ancient history. That's not 1861. Yeah. That is 2015, 2016. They were chasing after this guy. And uh, he has not... I think it's important to understand he has not said anything new. Yeah. You know, all he basically is just kind of repeating the same stuff. He just happened to turn up. I do think it's a big deal that they did what they did, although I align with Congressman Bobby Rush uh, from Chicago, who has said that he would still like to see a full venture of Steve King, where he is brought to the well of the House, and they read out um, the, the condemnation of someone who has, who has shamed the chamber by expressing racist and xenophobic ideas. Let, let me just uh, say, for our listeners who are not up to date on this, what happened was, after like the hundredth time that Steve King has defended white nationalism, uh, the Republicans all of a sudden voted to strip him of all of his committee assignments, which is a very big deal for a congressman, but you say uh, there, there should be more. So that's what we're talking about here. That's exactly right. And there was a vote uh, criticizing Steve King in the, in the House uh, two days ago. And the, the resolution was obviously classic congressional compromise, right? Yeah. So it, was, it, brought, it used Steve King's language, and the House voted overwhelmingly to criticize that language, but it didn't use King's name. And so King, being 
the just awful person that he is, came down to the court and voted in favor of the resolution. <laughs> oh, man. Because he said, well, it's not about, you know, you're criticizing these things. Of course I can criticize these things because it didn't use his name. Uh-huh. And so he's still gaming the thing. And yeah. all I would suggest is that I, Congressman Bobby Rush, uh, who joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1964 and has been at this for a long time, mm. uh, has argued that, you know, there, over the history of the Congress, there's been about two dozen members and since 1790, back when they were found in the Coast Guard. There's been about two dozen members who have been formally censured, and that goes into the permanent record. That's, that's the real thing. It's a small list, but a very important one. And he is arguing that if we really want to try and start to turn a corner on some of this, that it's time to do that, that it's time to take that, that next step. Uh, so, John Nichols, we've only got about uh, four or five minutes left here. I think we need to talk about Nancy Pelosi a little, since she's in the headlines everywhere uh, today. Nancy Pelosi wrote Trump about rescheduling his State of the Union address, and her sent- her letter concluded, I suggest that we work together to determine another suitable date after government has reopened. Suggest. What uh, What do you make of the word the, the word suggest there? It's very gracious of her. Nice, nice use of, of terminology. She could have said, perhaps we could choose another date. Um, she is exploring the relationship between uh, separate, uh, many people argue, equal yeah. branches of government. I, I, happen to be, I happen to read the Constitution to suggest uh, that the House of Representatives and the Senate are actually uh, a, a more definitional branch than the presidency. Uh, from a constitutional standpoint, unfortunately, we've allowed the presidency to become imperial. And um, I think that what Pelosi was doing there was a very, very significant and interesting pushback on the president of the United States. Yeah, uh, my, my, was, understanding, my understanding here is that the House invites the president to speak at a joint session. And if the House doesn't yeah. invite him, he doesn't come to the House. He can give it from the Oval Office or something. Exactly. And so what I'm what I'm suggesting is that she is exploring that relationship, right? She's carefully using words in order to not get into a corner. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, disinviting Donald Trump, telling him he cannot come up here, when she is the leader of the House, right? And remember, you know, that, that you've got a House and a Senate here, and this is a, you know, a joint session. It gets complicated, right? And I, I'd be very blunt with you. I think she's, you know, checking this out. She's sort of exploring this circumstance. What are you, how do it? I think the use of the word suggest is a terrific use of the word because really what she was doing here was saying, this is such a big deal that you shouldn't come do this until we've sorted this thing out. Um, I think there's a lot of people who would have been thrilled if she had just said, as far as I'm concerned, you shouldn't come. You know, she'd been blunter about it. But I, I, I see the, the politics that's happening here. And at some fundamental level, I want to tell you something. I've said this many times. I'll say it again. By the end of this two years, Nancy Pelosi is going to be as revered as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. No, this I can see why. with Trump. Yeah. This firing with Trump this is... 
Uh, it is at once important and necessary, but also, dare I say, delicious. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Viet Nguyen says, call me a refugee, not an immigrant. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry Quickly. But first, one of the defining features of Trump's politics has been the way he has appealed to hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants. Now, refugee writers and refugee lives are featured in a new book, it's called The Displaced, and it's edited by Viet Nguyen. He's the author of three books, including the unforgettable novel The Sympathizer. It won the Pulitzer Prize. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and he was selected recently as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, along with Ta-Nehisi Coates, Sonia Sotomayor, and Barack Obama. He also teaches at USC, where he's Arnold Chair of English, Comp Lit, and American Studies and Ethnicity. And he's speaking tonight at UCLA at Royce Hall at 8 o'clock. Last time we talked to him here, it was about The Sympathizer. Viet Nguyen, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, John. And congratulations on the Academy appointment. Isn't that weird? <laughs> strange to be strange to have my name mentioned in the company of those other names that you. That you well, al- alphabetical order puts you right next to Obama. It's a it's a great thing. Well, let's see if the seating chart works out the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the, in your introduction to this wonderful new book that is placed, you insist on being called a refugee and not an immigrant. Why is that? Well, I think it's. The immigrant idea in America is very strong. Right? We, we call ourselves a nation of immigrants, and it's a part of our mythology that immigrants come here and they achieve the American dream. And I think even at this moment in history where the xenophobic feelings in American society that have always been there are reaching another peak, even those people who don't like immigrants nevertheless believe in that immigrant idea. Like, of course, immigrants would want to come to the United States because we're awesome. But (laughs) refugees are different. Refugees are unwanted where they come from. They're unwanted where they go to. They're a different legal category. They're a different category of feeling in terms of how the refugees experience themselves. And they're a much more despised category even than immigrants for so many people in the United States. So it's very easy for someone like me to pass himself off as an immigrant, to pretend to be an immigrant, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice. I feel like I'm not speaking the truth, and I feel that it's necessary for people like me who have benefited from being a refugee uh, to acknowledge our existence as such and to advocate for the refugees today. Well, I looked up some of the statistics on refugees today uh, and about Trump's current policy. Last September, Trump slashed the cap on refugees admitted to the United States. 
Obama, under Obama, it had, the target was 110,000. Uh, Trump officially slashed that to 45,000, but this year it looks like he only 22,000 will be resettled, which is about a fifth of what Obama's target was. If we look at Syrian refugees admitted to the United States, uh, 2016, Obama around 15,000, 2017 around 3,000, and thus far in 2018, 11, a total of 11. That's how drastic Trump has has uh, slashed refugee admissions to the United States. Getting back to your story, you became a refugee uh, in 1975. You were four years old. Uh, what's the story there? How did that happen? Well, we, my parents were fleeing from the Vietnam War, and they were obviously from the southern side, so they were among the losing side. And so along with 130,000 other Vietnamese people who were afraid of communism, they decided to flee the country, and they were among the lucky ones who managed to get out because I think the CIA was estimating there was about a million South Vietnamese people who had some kind of affiliation with the United States who really wanted to leave and couldn't. So this 130,000 group of uh, population ended up in the United States in one of four refugee camps, and my parents and I ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania, and that's where my memories begin, uh, in a refugee camp, and being taken away from my parents, because in order to leave one of these camps, you had to have a sponsor. Well, one sponsor took my parents, one sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me, which, when you're four years old, it's very traumatic to be separated from your parents. Uh, and I speak now as a father of a four-year-old son, and, and, and looking at him, I see myself, and, and I just imagine how painful it would, it would have, yes, that, that experience yes. would have been for me and for my parents. So that's where memory begins with this narrative, and that's why I feel, you know, for me, I've never forgotten being a refugee because of that trauma. You write in the introduction to The Displaced, I do not remember many things, and for all those things I do not remember, I am grateful, close quote. Why is that? If you do any reading into refugee experiences, what you discover is that people who are refugees almost uniformly have <laughs> suffered terribly in trying to escape the country they were fleeing from and in trying to get to the countries that they want to go to. And in the case of just this South Vietnamese population that we're talking about, uh, the refugee experience was horrendous. You know, many, many, many lives were lost. Many terrible things happened to the people who were trying to flee. And at four years old, I didn't remember any of that kind of stuff. My, my brother, who is 10, you know, has, remembers dead paratroopers hanging from the trees yeah. on the mountain route that we were uh, escaping our home city from when we were walking downhill about 180 kilometers trying to make it to a port town to get a boat to Saigon. And that mountain route from the research that I've done as an adult was clogged with tens of thousands of civilians and all their vehicles and property and tens of thousands of South Vietnamese soldiers fleeing as well. It was a nightmare. So no one who's been to that experience has ever forgotten it. And those are traumatic, terrible things to have witnessed. So that's why I'm thankful that I don't actually remember these things myself, and I have the luxury of reconstructing them from other people's memories. Uh, you say that refugees like you and your family in America today are both invisible and hyper-visible. Uh, please explain what you mean. 
Well, by that I mean we share a situation that is completely common for just about any minority or marginalized population in this country or in any other country. We're invisible in the sense that people, the rest of America, doesn't know about our existence and doesn't care to know about our existence. So when my book started to come out, for example, The Sympathizer, I've had many people come up to me and say, well, we were there uh, in 1975 or the 1970s when the Vietnamese refugees started coming to town, and we knew nothing about them, and we never cared to ask. We were invisible, but we become hyper-visible when we become a problem, when we become gangsters or when we become visible as welfare cheats and things like that. But there's no in-between. We're not allowed the luxury of just being normal, just being visible, like everybody else in, in majority American society. And so we fluctuate then between never being seen and only being seen as a problem. And now we get to the writers uh, featured in, in the book you edited, The Displaced. Uh, you have a wonderful sentence about being uh, a, a writer about refugees. I keep my tattered memories of being a refugee close to me. Why is that? I think it's easy for people who have undergone some kind of terrible loss or some kind of terrible experience to forget about these things, although it's not easy. It's, it's desirable for them to do so. So I've actually met quite a few refugees who don't acknowledge that they are refugees. They just call themselves immigrants because, again, it's easier to call yourself an immigrant. If you call yourself an immigrant here, uh, you fit. people, people will, will want to hear your heartwarming story about getting to this country and succeeding. Yes. If you say you're a refugee, that's the quickest way to kill a cocktail party conversation <laughs> because people can't relate to that. So that's why I keep those tattered memories close to me because, number one, it's important to, to do this work of reminding uh, other refugees and other Americans that we exist. But number two, it makes me empathetic. It makes me feel for these new refugees and what they're going through. And that's an important thing for me as a writer and a human being to do, because I know that there are some former refugees out there who are saying, you know what, we're the good refugees. We deserve to be here. All these new people from the Middle East or Syria, for example, they're the bad refugees. They're different. We've got to close the door on these people. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Yeah, I just saw an opinion poll. I just came out today of uh, a majority of people in Texas oppose Trump's border wall, uh, but something like uh, 25 percent of Latinos support it. You kind of have to wonder what what are they thinking about? You have any insight into that? Well, I, I think it's very human <laughs> to be afraid uh, of other people, and that just because the people who are going to cross the border might be Mexicans or people further south of Mexico, we really can't expect people of Mexican ancestry in the United States to automatically welcome them with open arms. I mean, you, know, I, I, you look at the experience of any country, oftentimes the people who hate, who hate each other the most are your neighbors. Mm, yes. So it's, it's, that's what leads to civil war and ethnic fratricide and things like that. So I think it's not surprising, but it's also very American. You know, we're a very forgetful country. We, the people who come here tend to forget their origins over time. So some of the people who are the staunchest anti-immigrant advocates are only one or two generations removed from that immigrant experience. And then finally, I think we shouldn't, uh, you know, forget that perhaps people are worried about being contaminated yeah. by the presence of these new refugees or new immigrants, right? If you've worked hard to establish your American identity here, the last thing you might want 
is for the person who is just across the just crossed the border uh, in an undocumented fashion or who has just come fresh off the boat to use that kind of racist language the last thing you want to do is to see them because their presence might remind other Americans that you look like those people if you've just tuned in we're speaking with Viet Win about refugees and refugee writers he's the editor of a new collection called the displaced Let's talk about some of the other refugees who write in the book, The Displaced. Some of them are very famous. Uh, Ariel Dorfman on Chile, Alexander Hamon on Bosnia, and some are lesser known. Are there any that you want to, uh, that you find especially significant or interesting? Well, of course, I think they're all powerful writers and powerful stories. And one of the pleasures of editing this collection is just to collect 17 writers writing about very different kinds of experiences and and seeing the kinds of very human stories that they're telling. Uh, Cal Kalia Yang, for example, has a, has, has a bit on what it was like to be a Hmong child in a, a refugee camp in Thailand. And, of course, in a refugee camp, the parents are, are, are struggling to survive. They're not really there to try to take care of the kids. These little boys and girls were there to defend for themselves. And they, despite the fact that, the, that, that they were kids, were deeply concerned about survival and struggling uh, to fight and doing things that were dangerous in order to try to bring food to the table for their own refugee parents. I thought let, that was really... Yeah, let me say a word story. about... I was very interested in that one, too. Kao Kalia Yang, a Hmong writer, uh, I was especially interested because I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota, and of course the Twin Cities are one of the m main places in the United States that the Hmong emigrated to, and there's a big community there, which actually is pretty well known, but most of the stories that you read, there aren't very many Hmong writers, there's some, but most of their stories are about coming to the United States and the transition, rather than being little kids uh, in Southeast Asia. So I, I really enjoyed that one. Thanks for including it. Yeah, absolutely. Another story that touches on what we just talked about in terms of the border is Reina Grande's The Parent Who Stays. And Reina Grande is, you know, is a writer and everything, uh, and you would most typically classify her as being someone who is undocumented. But I was interested in this question of what is the distinction between someone who's undocumented or so-called illegal or an immigrant versus someone who's a refugee from south of the border? Why do we call these people who are trying to cross the border immigrants or undocumented or illegal versus refugees? Because a lot of them are actually fleeing from war, for example, whether it's it's an actual war, or whether it's a drug war, which is pretty close to an actual war. So I wanted an essay that would draw attention to that distinction. So she talks about what it means to, to, be, to be an undocumented person, but also that perhaps we could call some of these people refugees. And one of the reasons we don't is because it's a politically loaded classification. If we start calling people refugees according to the UN, they're owed certain kinds of rights and obligations uh, to which you know the United States has agreed. So it's an important uh, uh, incentive for the United States not to call certain kinds of people refugees, especially people from south of the border in whose countries we've meddled quite a bit. So the kind of the purpose of a book like The Displaced is to help us imagine the lives of refugees. But you say in your introduction that this imagining can lead us to deceive ourselves. What do you mean there? Well, I think that this is a part of the problem with literature. You know, literature's strength is built on on empathy, um, both the empathy of authors and the empathy of readers. We want to get to know other characters, other people from from different places, and this is a very powerful thing. But it's also deceptive 
because it's a luxury. I think we, we want to know about terrible situation X and, and sympathetic person Y, and we've read their story, and, and our, our hearts are warmed, and, and our, our emotions are moved. But what happens if we don't do anything? What happens if we just put down that book and pick up another book? What happens if we don't donate money, if we don't get involved in an aid organization? What happens if we don't call our elected officials? What happens if we don't march in the streets? What happens if we don't take action? And I think that's the danger of, of literature, that it can, as much as it awakens our feelings, it can also lull us into a sense of complacency that we've already done something simply by reading about someone's situation. And I should uh, add here that the publisher of The Displaced, Abrams, is donating 10% of the cover price to the International Rescue Committee, one of the one or two leading nonprofits in the world that's been providing humanitarian relief to refugees since World War II. I know you're a supporter of the IRC, and they're an important part of this book. No, absolutely. I think that there are important organizations like the IRC that are carrying out this work. They've been doing it for a long time. You know, there there are, uh, by UN estimates, uh, 22.5 million uh, refugees in the world right now, um, and that is out of a population of 66.5 million uh, displaced people, as the UN calls them. Uh, so if you add all these people up together, they're a very large country. That would be a country that's larger than France. Yeah. So there's, there's pressing need for these types of organizations and, and the work that they do. One last thing I wanted to ask you about. You had a piece in the New York Times, and the title was Don't Call Me a Genius. You, of course, are the winner of what is usually called, in fact, we just called it in introducing you, a MacArthur Genius Grant. Why don't you want people to use that word to describe you? Well, first of all, let me just say, I didn't write that title. Okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a, the whole piece is actually about the, 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 the problems with genius, not that I don't want to be called a genius. But, you know, it's, it's, it's about this idea that when we say genius nowadays in uh, our society, we're typically talking about some individual of remarkable talent or achievement. And we laud this person and we, and we elevate this person. And it, in my case, you know, it's related to the label that's often put upon someone like me, a writer from a minority or marginalized community. Uh, I have been called a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Many writers like me have been called that. And a voice for the voiceless is just this kind of thing that we trot out whenever someone is uh, writing about an experience we don't know anything about. And that, that's meant to be a compliment, you know, that this person is exceptional. And that's why it's dangerous, uh, because... When we call someone a voice for the voiceless, what we're really saying is we don't want to hear all the other voices that are out there. It's just easier dealing with one person. And I think that's the same thing with genius. And my, my feeling is that if I've been able to achieve anything as a writer, it's partly, yes, through hard work on my own, but partly also through a whole history of people who have sacrificed before me, other writers who have come before, other voices for the voiceless who have all been forgotten now for the most part. Um, my work is made possible by the, you know, all these social and political struggles by Asian Americans, by African Americans, by so, by so many other people that have created the space for someone like me not to be persecuted or discriminated against simply by the fact of my own existence. So for me, genius is actually something that needs to be considered in the context of communities, that one of the older meanings of genius is actually the spirit of a community. And I come out of an Asian American community, Vietnamese American community, 
who struggles, again, have made it possible for me to do the work that I do. And I don't think of myself as a voice for them who are voiceless people because they're actually all really, really loud. <laughs> I think that my work is aligned both with literature but also with these social and political movements whose goal is, yes, to get more voices out there, but really to transform the conditions of our society so that we don't have voiceless people anymore. And that's a really long-term struggle that we're engaged in. The long-term struggle. The book is The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. It's edited by Viet Nguyen. Viet, thanks for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, John. We taped that interview last April. Viet Nguyen will be speaking tonight at UCLA's Royce Hall at 8 o'clock. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, our producer, Renee Reynolds. I'm John Wiener. This has been Trump Watch. We'll be back next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Thanks for listening. Music